Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that beautiful song. And Billy for leading us so well in that hymn. It so closely follows what I'm doing in the message, no doubt. In God's providence and by Billy's planning, thank you for, for leading us so well. If you've been in evangelical circles for really any length of time, you've heard expressions like these. It's, it's not religion, it's relationship. You'll hear even self-professed Christians say things like, I'm, I'm spiritual, but not religious. There's a strange hesitancy among American evangelicals to refer to their faith with the word religion. I say it's strange because really at the most basic level, religion refers to a system of beliefs and forms of worship, which certainly describes core elements of the Christian faith. But even further than that, even more important, the, the Bible itself uses the word religion to refer to our faith. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the text that we're looking at today in James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Uh, in addition to a really strong anti-institutional bias, especially among young Americans, but truly everywhere in the culture now, I think that's certainly part of it where this comes from. But really the roots behind this hesitancy of owning the word religion really amounts to a distancing of ourselves from forms of religion that seem to be superficial. They seem to be external only. Roman Catholicism has long been a target for evangelicals, right or wrong. The thought is basically, if, if, if religion is nothing more than what some might perceive to be empty ritual and an occasional, occasional prayer and even forms of superstition. If that's what religion is, then, then count me out. I'm, I'm not interested, we say. But in James, he does not see the issue as religion versus something else. He's going to make a contrast of empty expression of religions, what he's going to call worthless religion, versus true religion, found in authentic faith before God. In our text, James confronts false expressions of Christianity. And in response, he displays what the authentic Christian faith should truly be. Let's look to the text together. I've titled this message, What is True Religion? Beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Seeing it for what it really is, James exhorts us to reject the empty expressions of faith that fail to transform one's life. He calls us to embrace the true faith that is evidenced by good works and personal holiness. My sermon divides into two parts that will unfold James's contrast. Here's the first part. Number one, a worthless religion. There's really no way to get around this, to, to sugarcoat this. This is, this is heavy stuff. James exposed a form of pseudo-Christianity or, or fake Christianity by showing its corrupt fruit, its rotten fruit. He calls on the person who fancies himself as religious, likes to consider themselves religious. He or she likes to, to look the part of the religious person. They, they go through the motions of Christianity. 
They might even have extensive knowledge of the Bible, head knowledge. But when you look a little deeper, something is missing. James declared that superficial religion without the evidence of a changed life is worthless. It is a dead faith, as he's going to call it later. And a dead faith cannot save us, cannot save anyone. The Bible tells us when a person's actions consistently contradict the faith that that they claim to hold, his or her faith fails the test for authenticity. I told you this is heavy stuff. Doug Moo, a commentator, catches James's point when he says this, that anyone who, claim, who has a claim to genuine religious experience must submit those claims to these tests provided here in James. And so, James gives specific examples to serve as a test for one's faith. He goes back, actually, if you look there in verse 26, to the issue that he addressed back in verse 19, a couple weeks removed for us now. You remember it, though, self-control with one's speech, guarding one's tongue. How we speak has immediate relevancy to anyone's claim to religion. James was especially concerned to address bursts of anger, our speech or our talk that would be angry and hate-filled. That's sort of the, the most obvious point that he was making, both, again, verse 19 through 22, and then now repeating it in verse 26. But there's more than that. This warning also includes things like vulgar speech, what we call filthy speech, gossiping, lying. See how we could just kind of keep moving along. Isn't it amazing all the ways that we can sin with our mouths? These have no place in the Christian life. And James says that if your life is characterized by these, then you undermine any ground you have for professing faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, our speech should be characterized not by these things, but by love, by wisdom, by encouragement, not by ungodly speech. But the point here is not that loose speech is somehow a sort of unique form of sin that sort of dissolves or eats away at one's faith. That's that's not his point here. James selected speech as as one among other signs that can expose the emptiness of a person's claim to Christianity. A person might attend church. They they might give financially. They might even be involved in serving in the church in some way. But his lifestyle, her lifestyle can reveal that their religion is an empty shell and nothing more. Reflecting on why... James would choose speech. John Calvin believed that he probably did so because it's predictability. It is just so common. He says, and really not much has changed in 500 years, he called it a vice under which hypocrites commonly labor. And he makes a great point why James would choose this. It's such a common thing. But there's something deeper. If we look to the teachings of Jesus, we begin to see maybe what James has in mind here. Jesus declared that what comes out of a person's mouth reveals what is in his heart. You know the expression Jesus says in a number of different ways, but in Luke 6, 45, he says it this way, from the overflow of the heart or from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James looks to the person who claims to be a Christian, but whose life habitually disregards God and his will. James says that this person's religion is worthless. Such strong terms, worthless. 
After World War I, Germany was really given the brunt of paying for the war, the, the, the winning side of the war, so to speak, which would have included us, the United States, Great Britain, France, and so on, really leaned in hard on Germany for their cause, for the destruction, and so Germany was forced to pay large amounts of reparations for the war, which ultimately, of course, we know the history ultimately leads toward Nazi Germany and so on. But it just became such a burden in this new republic that's trying to make its way in the early 1920s is just crumbling financially and economically. So much so that they go into a hyperinflation. I mean, hyperinflation like the world has not seen elsewhere. To where this, all of the, the, the German mark, all of their, their currency becomes essentially worthless. And so maybe you've seen the pictures of children that have what would account to ultimately millions of dollars worth of German money playing with it like toys. Paupers would have burned it to keep warm. People used it for anything except for money because it became worthless. Now, it wasn't counterfeit. It was real German money. It was a German mark. But because of the inflation, it became worthless. James calls this superficial religion worthless. It may in some way externally have signs of authenticity, but when you begin to look a little bit deeper, it becomes clear that it is worthless. Robert Plummer, a commentator, helps to illuminate the emptiness of this faith. He says this, James rebukes many self-deceived Christians who give no evidence of belonging to Jesus other than the presence of their bodies at a church building one or two hours per week. I think he's right there, but honestly, some don't even make it that far, do they? I mean, maybe they show up at church a handful of times a year. And, and, and many Americans for, for generations now have considered themselves Christian just because of their background. Well, my grandfather was a preacher, and my, my parents were church folk. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Texas, so I'm an, I'm, I'm an American. I'm a Protestant, you know, just because of wherever I'm, I'm from. This has been the case that there's this cultural Christianity that has been a part of our lives, especially in the Bible Belt. But church, listen carefully. If you take any comfort in that form of culture, the number of people who do so are fewer and fewer with each passing year. And, and the number of people who do this, this, this cultural expression of Christianity, you can quote me on this, it will be gone in a number of years. Now, I'm not talking about decades. We're not talking about 50 years. I mean in a number of years. Because as the culture becomes more hostile, because as the culture looks in and there is nothing to be gained in our society by claiming Christianity and affiliating with religion, rather there's something to be lost, that little bit of cultural Christianity which is left in the Bible Belt is eroding quickly. Eroding is probably not even the best word. I would say evaporating quickly. I don't say this with any sort of satisfaction. There is some good for society that was due to that, but I don't mourn its loss either for this reason. Because once that is gone, and as these things erode or evaporate, this gives the church a fresh chance to show what genuine Christianity really looks like. That it is not merely something associated by our ancestry or by our family or by the community that we live in. Far from it. That sort of religion, James says, is worthless. Think of what this does, just, just kind of plunging a little bit deeper here. Think of what this does to the church's witness. When large numbers of people have carried the name Christian while living in such a way that brings disrepute upon the church in the name of Christ. 
Unbelievers see this. They, they say to themselves, that person's a member at a local church. Maybe that person is a deacon or that person teaches Sunday school or that, that person attends church regularly. They see that and then they see the lifestyle in that person and they, they wonder, how can this be real when there is such hypocrisy? Now, I generally am defensive and push back against those claims of, of hypocrisy, but, but if, when I'm honest, the, the common charge that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites has tragically been true far too often. And for generations now, the church has done little to nothing about it. We've basically made ourselves impotent. Church discipline was given up many years ago due to a lack of willingness to practice meaningful church membership. Church membership, this is not uh, even just a Southern Baptist thing. This is true across evangelicalism broadly. Church membership basically became a means of self-identification. You're a member if you say you are, you're not if you don't, and that's it. It's, it's private between you and God, and there's nothing else to be said about it. Rather than holding to a covenant of a, within a local body of believers as the New Testament presents church membership to us. That's, that's the culture we live in now, church culture, that has been the rule for so long now. The person that James has in mind may or may not be aware of the emptiness of their faith. And this is an important point. Now, there are certainly times when a person is consciously aware and they're sort of playing the, 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 the role of the hypocrite, fully aware of their hypocrisy. But I think very often that's not the case. Other times, and we certainly see this within James so clearly, this tragic deception, if you look back to verse 22, the way that we are self-deceived and ultimately coming up here again in verse 26, that, that people fool themselves into thinking that all is well when their lives give such evidence to the contrary. And of course, anyone who's been in ministry has is, is, is struggled with this. In my ministry, I, I see faces of people that I've ministered to that have been in this place. In the end, they, they might be able to fool others for a time usually, but how tragic that they have also fooled themselves. This is the picture of pseudo-Christianity that James calls worthless. And so then, what does genuine Christianity look like? If that's, if that's the worthless religion, what is the real thing? Well, that leads us to number two, part two in this contrast, a pure religion. Look back at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The one who has genuine faith, the one who is a doer of the word as we saw recently, the one who has the implanted word as we saw in verse 22, the, the word that is able to save him, he or she will give evidence of a transformed life. What James calls pure religion will put into action the love and charity that God has designed for his people, that God calls us to as his people. James gave a clear example of this by pointing to the most needy and the most vulnerable of ancient society. He says that, that the person who puts God's word into action will care for those who are most in need of care. And so he chooses the, these two groups that he's going to focus on. The first being orphans. Orphans were in a, they were numerous in the ancient world. For, for a couple of reasons this was so. On one hand, mortality rate was so much higher in terms of people dying suddenly before modern medicine and modern safety precautions at work and things like that. And people would die at very young ages predictably. 
if you lived beyond 40 or 50, it was a good thing. You were living a pretty long life if you made it to 60 because life was just so precarious in this way. Again, without modern medicine and, and modern means, modern cleanliness, they didn't have germ theory. They didn't understand how things would work. And so death was very common. And so because of that, one parent or both might die and that child had nowhere to go. If other family would bring them in, that was great, but that was not required. Remember, this is before any sort of social system. This is before the state would bring people in. This is before orphanages had been established. Christians are going to be uh, forerunners in that later. But in the ancient world, there was, there was nothing. And so not only that, there was the fact that parents in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman culture, had no obligation to raise their children. And so if a parent had a child that was a girl, but they wanted a boy, they could abandon that child with no recourse. The, even the expression, I don't know if you've heard this, but as we raise a child... That was an expression given symbolically that you would raise this child. And if you didn't do that, there was no obligation that you were going to. And so if a child was kind of sickly or, or if it was a very poor family that ultimately felt like they couldn't afford, they could abandon the child, and many did. Now, later, Christians are going to be adopting them and bringing them in. And people watching them thought that they were weak for doing that. These children should be left to die. That was the world before Christian influence. And so orphans would have been all over the place. They would have been in every town, every city. You would have seen them running around. There's no public schools. There's nothing keeping them busy. They would have been everywhere. And they were in a very vulnerable and desperate place. No one to feed them. No one to care for them. No one to protect them. And abuse was rampant. That's orphans. Likewise, widows. Again, before modern medicine, very often a husband would die at work or die from a disease. And if you understand the way that, that, uh, the way that gender worked in the ancient world, it was a very patriarchal society to the point where a woman could not own, uh, she could not own property. She could not testify in court. She had no really legal rights at all. And so when a woman was young, her father cared for her. And then when she got married, her husband cared for her. And when that husband dies, if she's too old to be remarried, if she could find a husband, she could enter into that protection again. But if she couldn't find a husband, she was left completely alone, perhaps not even able to provide for herself financially. In fact, we see this with Joseph. Remember, Jesus' stepfather disappears from the scene by the time Jesus' ministry comes along. Apparently, he died, and that would have been very common. Mary remains a widow in the rest of the New Testament. And so that was the world to be, to be a widow in the ancient world without a man to step up for them. They lived a very precarious life. It was a dangerous time for widows and for orphans. And so James highlights these two groups, the most vulnerable, the most desperate in ancient society. And he brings them forth to, uh, to call Christians and to remind us of the need for compassion and charity towards them. Many times in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, there was a strong tradition of God commanding his people to care for orphans and widows, usually those two groups being named together. Now, James isn't excluding other groups like we could speak of, of the disabled, Right, we could speak of refugees. He has plenty of things to say about those things elsewhere. The New Testament does. But he pointed to orphans and widows because this ethic was so well established among God's people. Now, for us, God calls us to show love and mercy to the world because he has shown love and mercy to us. And so it will be a sign that one is a follower of Christ, that one is truly following after Christ, that he would imitate Christ's love to this hurting world. That's what genuine religion looks like. In the same way, that ungodly speech can reveal what is beneath the surface in someone's heart. 
so too caring for others is a sign that one is truly following after Christ. So you see this works both ways with this evidence here. I stress that orphans and widows were among the most vulnerable people of ancient society. In our own world, to be sure, orphans and widows still very much can be in great need. We, we think of the orphanages and state institutions that are just bulging with, uh, with uh, children that need to be adopted or fostered. We think internationally about that. And widows certainly can be in a difficult spot with, with loneliness and, and with, even with need and hunger in some parts of our, of our country. That can certainly be true. But there are others among us that can be even more vulnerable today. Now, I think of, of refugees and immigrants, for instance. We live in a war-torn world. There are millions of people every year, whether it's Syria, whether it's parts of South America, whether it's parts of Eastern Europe, that are war-torn and people are fleeing violence. Violence, whether it's an actual war in, in, the, in the traditional sense, or whether it's gang violence, or whether it's extreme forms of poverty. And in some places, sometimes these people are welcomed and tried to help and so on, but resources can only be so much. And to be a, a, an immigrant today, in many places, uh, they are so liable to abuse because they have no one to stand up for them. Perhaps they don't speak the language. Perhaps they're easily fooled because, again, they're just looking for, for help desperately. And then they face contempt of people once they resettle somewhere. We find such people here within our own communities, don't we? In North Carolina broadly, but even here in Buncombe County. And so we should ask ourselves as we read this, are, are there ways that we can help these vulnerable people? It should be our instinct to do so. Now, yeah, we can go, okay, are there logistical challenges and how can we best do this with wisdom and so on? Of course, but our instinct should not be to question and say, oh, this is too hard, but rather, how can we do this as men and women of faith? But I think perhaps the most vulnerable in our society are actually the unborn. Precious children before they can even breathe their own air, murdered in their mother's wombs. I mean, this, this should just grieve us to our core. And if our religion is pure before God, if it is genuine, what are we doing to help? Is there more that we can do to help? As a sign of authentic faith, it is that we would care for these but remember, as I stressed last week, this is important, always in the background here, we are not saved by our good works. But works of charity are an outworking of our faith in Christ. So church, this is, this is an opportunity for us when we encounter texts like this, that we would consider how we're doing in this regard. Both individually, thinking of my own personal life, am I doing something, am I, am I showing God's love in this way, but also collectively as a church, are we doing enough? Can we do more? Are we serving the needs in our community that God has placed around us providentially? We can't help and serve about needs that are distant and far from us that we know nothing about, but those that are immediately around us, are, are we meeting those needs? Consider just one example. Think of the growing homeless population. As the city grows this way, as the interstate is there, and all these logistical things. It, church, it's, it's easy to see Asheville's urban growth as an inconvenience. I mean, let's just be honest. We, we don't like change. We're comfortable with the way things are. We're comfortable with the way things have been. We have sentiment and we have memories attached to a certain way of living. But what if we embrace this 
as an opportunity rather than an inconvenience. This, this is my vision for our church. That we would face these things as society changes, as things change around us, as culture changes, as, as literally the physical landscape changes. That we would not see it as an inconvenience, but rather an opportunity in God's providence. Remember, and we talked about God's providence just this last week on Wednesday night. That we would see what God has done strategically to put us in this place, at this time, in this physical location. Who would have known in the 1940s that this is what Starnes Cove community and what Asheville would look like? There was no way. This was a sleepy little community. And yet, look where we are now. And yet, God knew it all along. And God has put us here for such a time as this. How we respond will say a lot. It will speak volumes about what is truly at work in our hearts. God calls us to show kindness to our neighbors because we have been recipients of his kindness. And as we seek to minister to our community, we must not forget also that the greatest need in our community is ultimately spiritual. Physical needs are there, and we must consider that. And ultimately, it's clear this is what James is, is emphasizing and yet we must not miss the spiritual as well. They are in need of the gospel, just as each of us have been in need of it as well. In addition to how we treat others, James also leads us to look within. Look back at the text, the middle of verse 27. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We just covered that. But also, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A commentator, Craig Blomberg, illuminates this kind of unexpected point. We don't expect this second part, maybe. He says this, James clarifies that social justice is necessary but not sufficient for religion. The second crucial condition is to keep oneself unstained from the world. There are, are some churches in America, really even perhaps I would say many churches in America, that would give great attention to social care, and rightly so. James, they're going to feed the hungry. They're going to care for the homeless. They're going to stand up for the marginalized. And James is going to say, good, yes, keep it up. That's great. Yes, this is what you should be doing. Again, those words in verse 27. But then immediately after, look what he says. He stresses the importance also of personal holiness. Church, we must reject a truncated view of religion, a very narrow view because we can't act as if good deeds are enough at the expense of holiness. And at the same time, I can't live as if my private little holy, my little life is all that matters. No. We do have a responsibility beyond ourselves. We need to, we need to demonstrate love, but also strive for holiness. True religion in Christ will keep us to lead, it will lead us to keep ourselves, to strive to be unstained from the world. When I was uh, in seminary, I took a job as a manager at a restaurant, and, and I enjoyed it because I like eating free food. And it was a fun job, and so I, I got to be over both the back of house and front of house is the language that's used. If you've ever worked in a restaurant, you're familiar with that. And they are two very different worlds. In the front of house, you might dress like this. In the back of house, it's messy. There's flour flying. There's grease and all the oil going on. And there's ketchup flying. And there's people running with food. It's, it's, it's a messy kind of crazy world. And as a manager, I need to be able to function in both those places. In the front, I need to be able to go up to a, to a customer or guests, as we called them, 
and be able to, to be able to speak in a professional way and be able to help them and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I need to make sure everything's going on in the kitchen. And so I'm back there. I'm making sure that the fryers are doing what they're doing, make sure that the expo is doing what he's doing. I'm, I might have to hop in at any moment on any of these places. I might have to hop in and do dishes occasionally. But I'm making sure everything is flowing the way it's supposed to. It's, it's administration, looking over all these things, right? And yet I have to make sure, again, that I'm keeping unstained by what's going on in the kitchen when I walk out to the front. And so every day I sort of have this challenge to not get you know, ketchup on myself and barbecue sauce on here and I end up smelling like a fryer and, and like steak seasoning and so on. I keep a fresh shirt in the, in the back sometimes just because. But, but very often, because of that very challenging environment, it is hard to keep unstained. And honestly, I often failed and had to go out there looking like a fool with, with a mess on myself. Church, it is, it is hard to remain unstained in this world as well. There's so many things going on around us, so many things that call for our attention and, and for our loyalty. We not only face our own internal temptations, which James has stressed for us, we've got enough going on in our own hearts. But beyond that, we live in a world that wants nothing more than to squeeze us into its mold. This is especially challenging for young people, that peer pressure at certain ages, which is why we think it's so important that we have a strong youth ministry and young adult ministry. But that challenge doesn't end when you turn 25. That challenge remains until we go home to be the Lord. It just becomes different, doesn't it? Church, we, we must have a pure faith that transforms us. We must have a faith that ultimately, that the Spirit would be leading us into all righteousness. That's how we make through this world unstained. Because if it's up to us, if we're on our own, if the Spirit is not in work in us and we're just trying to do this by ourselves... Well, we're doomed. We'll fail every time. That's why a faith that is only artificial, that is only superficial, is worthless. So what is the solution? If you, if you begin to think that, well, I, I'm beginning to wonder, what if my faith is not genuine? What if I only have this superficial, this superficial faith? What, what do I do? Now, you might be inclined because of our own just disposition. You might be inclined to grit your teeth, work harder, say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to watch my tongue, I'm going to do good works, I'm going to go serve at the homeless shelter and so on. Good for you, but you know what? The fact is you can try and do this and still have what James calls a worthless religion. The solution is the same for everyone, for you, for me, for everyone. The solution is that we would repent of our sins, that we would trust in Christ alone to save us. That we would believe in him and receive his promised Holy Spirit, which is powerful enough to transform our lives, body, soul, and mind. Brothers and sisters, we must strive to live a holy life and to do good works. But the way that we will succeed is by this transformed life that is a gift of the Holy Spirit, not something to be earned. I'd like to do like I did last week and to take a time for us to respond just privately, quietly where we are. If you feel inclined, if you would like, you are welcome to come and pray up here at the front. But I want us to just take a time of silence. And regardless of where you are in this, if you are a Christian and you want to just commit yourselves ultimately to following after the Lord and holiness to remain unstained from the world, to, to do works of charity ultimately as a sign of your faith, or if you are finding yourself in that category of perhaps holding a worthless religion, Ultimately, this is the time now that we would cry out to the Lord and pray. So let's take a moment of silence.
before I pray for us. Please bow with me. Lord we thank you that salvation is a work that you do and yet God we we want to be confident Lord we want to have the assurance that you say it can be ours God and I pray for these brothers and sisters that they would have it and ultimately God that everyone within the sound of my voice would believe in you Lord that would follow after you with authenticity with sincerity and oh God give evidence of a life that is transformed by your spirit. Help us as a church, Lord, that we would be committed, Lord, to doing these things corporately, that we would, Lord, serve those who are vulnerable and in need in our communities and even among us within the household of faith. And Lord, that we would guard our tongue, that we would guard our lives and remain unstained from the world. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who's powerful and sufficient to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask now, Brent, are you coming to pray for us? Please come and pray as we close this out. God bless you. I pray that you have a good week. Well, let us pray. Well, Father, we're, we're so thankful to be in your house this morning, Lord, to, to fellowship with one another and just to, uh, to worship you, Lord. And Lord, as we've heard this message this morning, we just pray that we, we store it in our heart and our minds, Lord, and Lord, as we, we worship you this morning, we just pray that as we leave and we go back into the world, a world that, that doesn't understand religion and doesn't stand what it, understand what it means to be a Christian, we just pray that what we've heard today, that Lord, we share and we truly reflect Jesus, Jesus' love as we, we face this world. And Lord, not only that we reflect his love, but we reflect it in a way that, Lord, that it draws people to you, that we give people a thirst, that we can be the salt that, that would draw people to you and help people to understand what it truly means to be a Christian. And so we just ask as we go now, Lord, is that you bless this time we have today. And Lord, that uh, as we go out and face the world, that you would give us the strength and the confidence and what it would take just to, to draw people to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.